Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today, we hear from Trioscope Studios Chief Executive Elsie Crowley and Chief Creative Officer Greg Jonkatis about new Netflix Second World War adult animation drama series, The Liberator. And Rob Slater, Head of Production at UK indie Meridian Line Films, which specialises in making documentaries in China. While adult animation is an expanding genre of television, US-based Trioscope Studios is among a number of companies marrying animation with human performances. A case in point is The Liberator, a Netflix series launching on November the 11th based on the true story of a Second World War infantry commander who led a battalion of cowboys, Native and Mexican-Americans through Europe and ended up liberating a Nazi concentration camp at Dachau. Written by diehard scribe Jeb Stewart, the project was originally destined for the History Channel, but when costs proved prohibitive, Animation and Netflix offered the solution. Trioscope Chief Executive Elsie Crowley and Chief Creative Officer Greg Jonkatis spoke to Michael Pickard about the series. We had been sort of researching and developing, you know, some test material and just aesthetic material in a vacuum. We did we we knew, we knew not of Liberator originally. We shared that material with some friends of ours at A&E who said this is very interesting. We have a project that we think this could be perfect for. What we didn't know at the time is that it it was struggling, you know, because of it had been determined to be so expensive. And and they really had the foresight to say, "Hey, maybe that trioscope stuff is the way we solve this this big epic story of Liberator. They sent the script over. That was all they said to us, by the way. They sent the script over and on it, it said written by Jeb Stewart. And we were like, hold on, Jeb Stewart? He wrote Die Hard? Like Jeb Stewart? You know, uh, and then it kept sort of going from there. It was like, oh, and Michael Lynn and Bob Shea are producing, you know, legends, you know, having made, gosh, everything, but, you know, Lord of the Rings and everything else. And so we, th- they sort of said, would you guys be interested? And of course we said, yes. So we started talking about it. Uh, we did some test material. We chose a scene. We made it in Trioscope. Everybody at the network was just sort of blown away. And then Netflix saw that piece. I think somebody at a shared it with someone at Netflix. And we got a call out of the blue and they were like, hey, from Netflix. And they were like, hey, we saw this thing you guys made. It's really interesting. We think we're going to buy it. <laughs> so a lot of luck, uh, a lot of very fortunate little, you know, happenstance has happened along the way. But, you know, what we have heard through the process from Netflix is they see this union of offering audiences a completely new kind of visual experience in addition to this great script and, and a great true tale. Uh, one of the greatest untold, war, you know, World War II stories of all time was sort of a mix they couldn't refuse. You know, it just had sort of so much going for it. Uh, and we've obviously felt very fortunate that they were willing to take, you know, an early bet on us. Hopefully we have not let them down. <laughs> I mean, can you just, um, obviously it's said in World War II, can you just give us a flavor of the story and, and how we follow the characters through the series? Yeah, it, it is a harrowing tale uh, of the 500-day journey that, that a group of soldiers took when they landed in Sicily and moved all the way north and eventually to Munich. No other company or battalion fought more days consecutively than these guys. They were known as the 
Thunderbirds and what's really interesting about them. They come from the American Midwest, but mostly the Southwest. They're led by a guy named Felix Sparks. If you've seen any of the press, you've probably seen played by, by Bradley James. He was this kind of Dust Bowl cowboy guy and young officer. And he was assigned a company of men who were mostly, uh, this is at Fort Sill in Oklahoma, were mostly Native American and Mexican-Americans who had sort of been deemed by the U.S. government as, they, it, it had been assumed that they would not fight on behalf of the U.S. Army with, with very much vigor, right? Like they assumed these guys are ostracized in their own land. They're not really going to fight for, for the USA. But it turned out when the war broke out, they went over about a year before D-Day. These young Latina, Latinx and, and Native American guys, you know, all that were 18, 19, 20 years old went over and saved the world. <laughs> no, no two ways about it. They fought harder. They achieved more uh, than just about anybody. And they eventually were tasked with the unthinkable in liberating a concentration camp at Dachau. They didn't, that wasn't their original mission. It just happened to be one of the last stops on their way to Munich. Didn't know what they were finding. And they found one of humanity's absolute biggest atrocities in history. And that was also one of the reasons that, you know, Trioscope, you know, works here because we have so many dramatic and, and harrowing scenes and emotional scenes and especially liberation of Dachau. I just can't imagine it with cartoony characters looking at those prisoners that were there and how, how they in that encounter scene. It has to be told with real humans <laughs> definitely yeah compared to other uh, other animation there just would be no way to do it i mean and dachau obviously being the the biggest sense of human suffering but these guys in our story covers all kinds of human suffering uh, and to be able to show that with the appropriate amount of nuance and respect you know I, I just don't think there's any other type of animation that could actually pull that off and so you know what you got the call from netflix and, and you're kind of speaking to jeb about the scripts and i mean how how far does the process resemble a classic in you know in inverted commas drama production and how early or where do you start thinking about the animation process and and how does that then affect what we would recognize as a standard you know shoot on a on a set so basically there's like two ways of thinking about it one way is like finding that style designing the world designing the final look doing a lot of concept art and and little tests here and there so that's one way uh, we're working and that's very trioscopian way <laughs> To work but uh, the other stream of of all the work that we do is typical like we're a normal live action show you know casting some rehearsals and and and, and then the shoot which resembles very much uh you know vfx shoot except you have this smart makeup and special treatment for props and special camera settings and all that stuff that helps us later achieve our look after we shot stuff in camera but one big thing that we do is the very detailed story storyboard and previs we basically make a version of like very poor animated version of the whole show, even black and white, with temp music and temp sound and temp uh, voice over or even dialogue. And so what, what this helps us to do is first, we know that the show works. <laughs> on that very you know it can only get better because if it works like with the very rudimentary animation then we make sure you know all the ingredients are there dramatically then we can determine ahead of shooting what parts of the set or the props what parts we have to build for the actors to interact with for them to sit on what vehicles we actually want on set and what tanks can be later animated in CG so that's very important we can discuss the lighting and all the mood stuff with the OP uh, ahead 
ahead of time, of course, because he sees the material and we can dramatically design that stuff. And then we can start building CG environment early on because we know that, okay, this is the scene where big field of, you know, foxholes will be present for most of the time. We can start building most of that background stuff. And on set, this whole previous helps actors a lot because sometimes, you know, we try to have as many elements as a real on set, but of course we're not going to build big buildings and all that stuff. So we show them this clip and they know, okay, this is the scene. We, you know, they can immediately put themselves in it. You know, it just helps them to, okay, Germans are on the left. The enemy is there. We're going to, that's the whole situation. So that helps them a lot uh, to orient themselves in space and, and location. And that's very, very useful. So that's something, you know, that VFX should do on a smaller scale for specific scenes, but we do the whole show like that. It doesn't mean that we stick to it like 100%. Of course, if there is magic on set, you know, if somebody has great idea or something is just like works different way, then we go with it. And we have, you know, married this, a lot of scenes like that that happen to be just better on set, you know, designed on set and, and we shot it that way for Liberator. But having that blueprint is enormous, you know, uh, help for every department uh, we found. Yeah, yeah. I'll add um, when we first cast Bradley James, uh, he and Jeb and I sat down in London. He had not seen much. He had seen, uh, you know, obviously the script and had seen a little bit of the test material. But we, by that time, had had a pretty good amount of the previs built. And I think I shared with him maybe two minutes of the first episode. Uh, he asked me to pause it and he, and I thought he was bored. And he goes, like, this movie is so good. Like, we could put this out right now. <laughs> but I think that's, you know, a testament to what Greg's saying. To give an actor, you know, a, a a very vivid window into the, the story itself as it's going to be told and giving them the opportunity to, you know, to add all of, all of their craft to that previous helps a lot. And then the other thing that I might add, you know, Greg, when we, when we first sat down with Jeb, Jeb's prior to doing any of any of this stuff, just the very first time we sat down with Jeb, he said something and he comes from the live action world, obviously he said, you know, how should I be thinking about writing this? Cause he had to go through a whole rewrite process. He had written the script, but now that we were thinking, you know, now that it was to be Trioscope, he said, I want to know the set pieces. I want to know the pieces that you guys are excited about building in Trioscope. I want to know the aspects that I don't miss any opportunities that this medium allows. So, you know, I think he was very gracious to come at it from that respect and really did. I, mean, I think he really was able to write into the medium in a way. And so what you'll see across the various episodes of Liberator is this emphasis on each episode is really kind of its visually kind of its own world. You know, you start in uh, one place and then you get a, almost like a video game levels, if you will. You know, then the next episode is kind of a very different aesthetic and so forth and so on. And, you know, I think that's that's Jeb really looking at the visuals and taking advantage of them, which is cool. I mean, what are the challenges of, of the medium or what were the challenges on this show? I mean, it's it's obviously got lots of advantages. But what are the, the things that you really have to get your head around that maybe you wouldn't on a, on a normal drama? Well, I think uh, for, for actors, especially, you know, shooting with very limited set and therefore limited mood for them to be in, to react to the environment. That's always a challenge. That's why, you know, the, the previous helps, but also the partial set, you know, that we built for most of the scene helped them hopefully to, to, to feel like in theater, if you will, you know, except the, the background is not dark black, but it's blue or green. But at least, you know, our, our goal was to always make sure that they interact with objects that, that there's no tenuous balls somewhere representing 
a wall or you know if, if if there is a wall or if there is a confined space that they're supposed to be in then we would always build it whether it's with real elements that end up on screen or with blue walls or you know chunks of uh, boxes we always try to make sure that they feel either they're on a large space in a large you know location like in Anzio or they are confined in a jail for example there's a jail scene we build we build this narrow corridors and stuff so so they always felt like that so there was a lot of that to, to make sure that the performance comes as, as natural as possible but also what we found is that like even if there's a battle scene or, or a scene that eventually will take place with a lot of extras or, or or a noise or a battle somewhere like far away the intimacy of this set that it's a fairly small uh, shooting stage there's not so many distractions in terms of like I said extras or massive explosions and stuff I think it's more comfortable to pour out your emotion for an actor there because they have such an intimate setting and I think that helped a lot in, in certain scenes and then because of Trioscope we are able of course to add those elements for the background later and expand that scene but the intimacy is there and I think that that's very beneficial yeah you know on Liberator in particular we were we were really concerned that there would be a fatiguing quality to being on in the in the fishbowl if you will all day every day and you know not having that that emotional context so greg really had some great ideas about always having the previs and lots of so the actors could always watch it but also like concept art and just con- like in the hallways of the studio and saying hey this is how it's going to look remember you know and then we even did things like we built uh, we built a canteen and we turned the green room basically into kind of their hangout space into like a medic tent if you will you know and that's where we found those guys uh, spending a lot of time in there and playing poker or whatever they were doing you know and it kind of gave them a, that physical space so that when it was time to go on set they had some kind of reference and tried to do a lot of that and then we're also doing things on set you know we're pumping in audio track into their ears for, particularly in like battles and stuff so if nothing else so they don't just feel like idiots out there reacting to stuff that doesn't exist you know they've got a full sort of soundscape that we're controlling you know Greg's actually controlling explosions and stuff and they're reacting in a way and it you know brings it to life in their imagination those actors had a lot of fun with stuff like that for sure sort of I guess more broadly speaking you know we've seen a couple of similar shows to, to this one in terms of style and obviously this is progressing and the, you know the techniques are getting more enhanced each time I mean where do you see this kind of genre and ease techniques going are we going to see a, a kind of a boom of, of this kind of content do you think from yourselves and other companies or is this going to be kind of a niche yeah it's a fantastic question i mean our view is that there's a sort of a pandora's box moment happening right now i think there's a convergence of a bunch of things you know that we aren't causing that we're sort of a part of but with streaming and and how it's sort of taking over content and how that is really expanding the sort of our all, all of our viewership palettes right we're watching things we never would have watched before from places we never even knew existed or unless you were going to some international film festival you know you would have never seen that kind of content so i think there's a lot more experimentation and yeah i mean shows like love death and robots which was obviously huge for netflix undone for amazon um even things like spider verse are speaking to what we think is you know audiences giving an early signal that they are that they are into this and that it is much much bigger than a niche you know every year there for whatever the last 50 years there's been a really cool critically acclaimed uh, animated film coming out of some part of the world that remains niche but you know i think liberator and many other things are indicators that something bigger is there and what we're trying to do you know is do 
our part to grow that category in a, in a meaningful way uh, and really show audiences that animation can do a whole lot more than it's really ever been tasked with doing on a mass scale. So, and, and Liberator is a perfect example. I mean, if animation can tell the story of liberation of a concentration camp and, and can do it in an emotional way that, that audiences respond to, then I'm not sure there's nothing it can't do, you know? So we're looking at, well, where else can we really push the boundaries and, and really just sort of demonstrate animation's power for drama? So whether that's super sci-fi, which sort of, you know, it's expected. You would expect that you would be doing a lot of world building there, uh, but also all types of different period material, grounded and ungrounded. And what we hope is that we are leading the charge, you know, but that many others follow. Elsie Crowley and Greg Jonkatis from Trioscope Studios talking about The Liberator, which debuts on Netflix on November the 11th. UK indie Meridian Line Films started the year with four Chinese co-productions on its slate and was one of the first production companies to feel the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Head of production Rob Slater spoke to Clive Whittingham about the varying fortunes of those projects as a result and what it's like to produce today in the country where the virus originated but has seemingly been swifter than many in bringing it under control. We're an independent production company based up in York uh, and we've tended to focus on China-related content in our, our five-year history. My boss, uh, Liz McLeod, who set up the company, has got a long-running uh, relationship with China. I think she's sort of been back and forth since the mid-80s. And I, too, spent four or five years in China, uh, first of all, learning Chinese and, and teaching English, and then back sort of working as a fixer and a, a location director. And so I met Liz that way, and Nacressa, who's set up the company with Liz five years ago was also spent some time in China. So yeah, we've all we've all had a sort of ongoing relationship with China, sort of which pre-existed our, our TV careers. Is it the uh, impossible to navigate difficult, challenging market that everybody makes it out to be in television? Or have you guys got a bit of a knack to it by now? I mean, it definitely has its own peculiar problems. And I'm sure sort of every, every region has that. We're fortunate, I think, in that, I mean, having spent time there, I guess we're, we're a little bit more aware of the potential pitfalls and the cultural differences and Liz uh, who's had a long time sort of back and forth with China has got a really strong relationship with a couple of uh, there's one one company CICC based out of Beijing calls themselves China's oldest production company or one of the oldest production companies and they've often worked um, hand in hand on a lot of the projects we've done so they're great obviously as as guides and sort of assistants in, in, in terms of getting things done yeah What was the plan for your company for 2020 uh, before for the pandemic, if we're talking sort of January time, I guess you're looking forward. What was uh, what did 2020 look like for your for you guys? Yeah, it was quite exciting. I'm sure everyone starts the year with sort of uh, big plans, and we had two main objectives uh, f- for the year. And one was to get our first non-China related, or at least our first UK commission. We were keen as a company uh, and still are to, to diversify, you know, for the future pros- prospects of the company, but also to go back to some of our alternative and other interests. And then the second one was to try with the China related projects to try and work with a few more different uh, co-production partners. So we tended to to work with um, the Asian wings of, say, Discovery or Nat Geo. And our plan was then to try and and bring in other US, UK co-production partners just to try out new, new systems. 
I believe uh, four co-productions in China in various uh, stages at the start of the year. Can you tell us a little bit about the picture of those at the start of the year? We we, we had four. Uh, we've ended up with one. They were along the same line. So we had one, one production that was cancelled right at the start of the outbreak. We, we'd actually flown a director into China and it was before um, we had any inkling really as to the scope of the of the outbreak and, and you know, obviously the results sort of following pandemic. And so we had a director that spent a few nights in a, in a hotel. I think he was the only individual in the hotel, a thousand room hotel. I think he had four or five nights there on his own and it, it gradually dawned on us that we had to get him back and, and it was not going to go ahead. So that was the first one that um, bit the dust. We've got a couple more that um, have been postponed, one with a sort of fulfilling our aim of working with a different co-production partner a US broadcaster that one's still on on pause and it's just we're unable to get the international experts into China at the time so we're, we're hoping that that will resurrect uh, further down the line once once restrictions have lifted and another that is on pause which is again for the reasons of trying to get foreigners into China presenters on that one so we're trying to reconfigure and work out whether we have to have to wait or come up with an alternative plan for for shooting without uh, foreign presenters and then finally Finally, a Discovery Asia project that we're in the midst of shooting uh, at the moment. So that one we we hung on to um, and we're just doing it all remotely. So that's that's all new for us as well. Obviously, China was ground zero for the for the virus. So at what point in the year, presumably much sooner than most production companies we talked to, at what point did you guys realise there was a problem here? So when that director was sent out on one of the projects that that um, ended up falling down, that was in fact we had a we had a team out in January, right at the beginning of the year, who were finishing their last few days uh, filming. And we they just managed to wrap and get everything back. It was the sort of shooting for the third episode of a series. So we're really fortunate with that. We obviously saw that there was a problem in China, and we but we still thought we could get around it. So we sent out another director sort of soon after, um, again late January, and then and then obviously it dawned from within China that we weren't going to be able to to travel around freely, and and that wasn't going to work. But as you're sort of pointing to, they they managed to get on top of the pandemic and the outbreak in Wuhan uh, really quickly, and I think their track and trace system, as we're finding out now, has been has been really successful and meant that they they got on top of it pretty quickly. And now, I mean. We're finding on this current current production, although we're, we're unable to get our own crews across, and we're we're filming with um, Chinese producers and some foreign producers based out in in China. We're, we're being able to travel around pretty freely uh, and get get everything done just by using remote crews, and then sending rushes back and, and cutting everything from here. So it sounds like a nightmare being a, a UK production company that's focused on China at the moment, given everything that's happened. But because they were first in, they they're first out presumably. So while we're stuck in production lockdown downs you guys are able to to get back to work or am I being too optimistic and simplistic no I mean you, you know you're not I mean yeah we, it's seemingly this one production has worked I mean it was one out of the four that that we've managed to to get going on so it's not kind of the greatest ratio but I, I guess that will give some sense of you know if we if we can deliver which I'm, I'm fairly confident we will on that production I guess it will give confidence in terms of different ways of being able to manage the other ideas that we've got on the table and potentially other ideas that we're, we're 
sort of generating. So yeah, I, I think I guess in that way we're lucky that that our business, um, a lot of our businesses out out in China, and that they've got on top of the pandemic so quickly. Yeah. What are the pitfalls you face now? And what are the workarounds that you're you're looking at? Is it about is it possible to use local crews in China, and is that a way around? Because like you say, it's not just China. International travel for television production is just challenged full stop at the minute. So how do you? What are the workarounds you're using to get back up and running? Yeah, I guess we're we're fortunate in that we've we've spent this time um, working with China over the last five years and sort of individually previous to that. So we've got a great network of specifically Chinese or China-based um, producers and crew. And yeah, as well as relying on them, putting a lot more, I guess, responsibility in their hands and being more meticulous with the way that we're presenting scripts or beat sheets and everything, we're having to put more work on this side. We're also relying on on expertise that we're, I guess, yeah, we're putting more more responsibility in our hands. And we've also been fortunate in terms of finding additional crew. We've come across some some great people on this particular project that I didn't even know about and have come through our existing network. So for China, I think we're in a pretty pretty strong position, and it seems to be working. Yeah, I, I mean, people are travelling around freely, and we've obviously had to be quite rigorous with putting in place a COVID filming plan according to the broadcasters health and safety policies and following the sort of packed guidelines on, on all of that. So, you know, we're having to be meticulous in, in terms of the, the planning, both production-wise and also editorially. I, and, and I guess that means that that can work. For, I'm sure that is working for other people in other parts of the world. We're yet to try and test it. I mean, I, I yeah, I hope we get those commissions, which means that we can, we can do that. Well, uh, are there any particular restrictions and protocols over there for, for a foreign production company coming in and filming now that we perhaps wouldn't expect or are different to what's happening here? What, what sort of things are you having to go through to get up and filming so in terms of obviously yeah i think they're only just opening the doors if, it, if we were to send in foreign crew from from our side i think they're just starting to open the doors on on certain visa applications and those are still coming with a 14-day quarantine which makes it prohibitive yeah economically for us to do that but for the people on the ground there i've been surprised i mean i put in a lot of work in producing a, a fairly thorough bilingual covid filming plan in advance of the shoots that we've got going on and actually although the crews are adhering to those sort of fairly standard rules of you know distancing and using boom ops where possible and washing kit down and washing hands regularly i mean in china obviously people are really used to using face masks anyway but actually the the restrictions have been far less I was expecting that we'd run into quite a few problems on the production and that we'd have crew members who, you know, have got a temperature and then they'd be, we'd have to replace people and it's going to cause a lot more problems. We haven't had any of that. So if anything, I've just been surprised at how easy it has been on the ground there. I think we had one scenario where we were going to shoot something in um, in the city of Nanjing and we got via one of the Chinese producers, we heard that there was a, an outbreak on the east side of the city and we thought that maybe we were going to have to postpone that shoot and it turned out, no, it was very, they'd, they'd managed to contain it and it was geographically far away enough from where we were shooting so we were fine we could carry on and shoot but that's the one thing I think that we've had across filming for the last sort of couple of months and otherwise people have been you know they're they're flying on planes they're driving all over the place we've had multiple crews traveling the the length and breadth of China we haven't had any issues whatsoever I mean I think yeah we avoided filming with people over 65 and we've obviously been sensible but it, it feels almost like there is no issue there now. Do you think doing business with China is going to be more challenging as a result of this and it's it's sort of a two-pronged question one the practicalities of it because international travel for television production is going to be a pain for a while wherever you're going but also the hostility particularly in the US and sort of 
maybe growing in the UK towards China over all of this. Is Do you see that being a, a challenge moving forwards or not? Um, so I guess, yeah, there's a couple of things. I, I, I think China relies on personal relationships and I think connections and relationships is, is a big deal in China. And I think that's a big part of why we've managed to be successful is having regular contact. If it's not Liz or me flying out to China and having several times usually across the year to have meetings in China with various partners there. So I think that that having a year on, on hiatus and everything just being digital will have a, a slowing effect on co-production deals. I'm, I'm sure it will. Uh, and then sort of on the on the sort of political side of it, I mean, one of the projects I talked to you about earlier on with a US broadcaster that's on hold now, we were concerned that that would just bite the dust immediately because it's a US commissioner. And we just thought the way Trump's sort of handling Chinese relations, relations with China, that that, that might just go away. And they were eager to, to say that, they, you know, that's not that's not their aim and that they hope that, you know, it's important to maintain those diplomatic ties and that, that this is one way of re- retaining relationships and that actually they're, they're really keen for the production to carry on. So yeah, I guess that's that's a, a string of hope and that will be our hope too, you know, that I think I think it's important that, that we try and that I suppose this, again, the production that we've got going on proves that that it, that it should be possible. But yeah, I think you're right. There is likely to be a, a, a slowing and there's a wariness, I'm sure, in, in Western media and probably a, less of an appetite for looking at just interesting things. There's, there's a million interesting things to learn and to know about China and other stories that we feel that, you know, we'd want to tell. But maybe there's going to be a bit of a less of an appetite, at least in, in the UK and, and, and the US over the next few months. So yeah, I guess we're waiting a bit with bated breath. Are you anticipating and are you pitching doing a load of COVID projects from China? You know, this is where it started and this is how they dealt with it. In theory, it should be a great opportunity for you guys with the contacts you've got there. But also we hear a lot from broadcasters that they just don't want COVID content because everybody's sick of it because it's on the news, it's on current affairs. Are you deliberately pitching non-COVID projects? I mean, which, which way do you think it will go? Yeah, I mean, I think we've sort of followed the commissioner's advice and sort of sense on that. So in the early days, we did pitch China-specific stories around COVID. And I think just over the time that we were in discussion about those, the appetite from the audience fell away and therefore the commissioners. So yeah, we were unfortunate, I guess, not to have got something away in that early moment. It felt like we had a couple of of good ideas uh, that would have worked for, for UK commissioners. But they, they, yeah, they didn't pan out. And now I think you're right. Yeah, we, we, we are pitching yeah, alternative material as everyone, I think, sort of followed that trend. So what plans looking ahead to 2021 as, be, as best we can plan with it changing every day? What's the sort of company strategy for next year? So the plans for next year are st- kind of pretty much the same as they were at the beginning of 2020. We've had to adapt a little bit, yeah, uh, in terms of using this remote crews, but we're still gunning for a couple of those projects that are on hold and working with new co-production partners on the China stuff and desperately throwing more effort into UK commissioners and development on that front. We've been fortunate in the last sort of few months to be signed up to BAME leadership programmes with, with Channel 4 and Channel 5. So we've got a few things that we're in discussion with those broadcasters and we're, we're really hopeful that that'll give us a bit of diversification at the company over over this next year yeah that nations and regions focus this time seems quite genuine in the UK rather than just paying lip service to it if you're based up in York and 
the north that that presumably should benefit you right yeah i think i mean we were unfortunate again we, we lost a, a uk commissioner four part obdoc yeah just due to access fell through once the pandemic had sort of really kicked off in in spring so um yeah i'm hoping we can get something something away back along those lines rob slater from meridian line films that's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. Listener.